Warning, this podcast may contain graphic and triggering content. Please listen at your own risk. Each individual struggle is different and everyone's recovery and healing journey is different. Please reach out to a certified medical professional if you need help. Welcome to episode 47 of Stomp the Stigma, the podcast aimed to fight the stigma surrounding mental health through education, awareness, experiences, stories, resources, and the vulnerable truth. Joining me to Stomp the Stigma this week is Kim Toller. Last week, I interviewed her sister Joanne all about the trauma and healing journey that Joanne went on after losing her daughter. So this week, I have Kim on to talk about her healing journey and her trauma following losing her niece. These two are from the same family, experienced the same event, but their trauma was very different and their mental health journeys were very different and their healing process was also very different. So if you didn't hear episode 46, you can go back and listen to that. And then you can come and listen to this episode and hear the differences in their struggles. In this week's episode, I get to talk to Kim about her anxiety, how she used her therapy and coping mechanisms for years. So she kind of had the tools already in place when she experienced Taylor's death. But we got to get into how her anxiety changed after losing her niece from focusing on the small things to the larger things in life. We got into a little bit of the stigma around how you think you should react to death and what other people expect from you versus what actually happened to her and what she went through and trying to distinguish her fascination with crime and murder and death versus grieving the loss of her niece. As you guys know, this podcast is aimed at the mental health journey and the mental health side of things, but if you want to hear more about the case itself and the investigation and the events that led up to Taylor's death, you can check out Kim's podcast called A Million Other Choices, and the whole story is on there. So I hope you guys love this episode as much as I did. I love the comparison between the two sisters and really showcasing that the healing journey and trauma and everybody's mental health is different, even if you experience similar events. How are you? I'm good. It's nice to meet you in person. Yeah, nice to meet you too. My podcast is more focused on the mental health side of things, and so I want to get into kind of your your struggles and your healing um, and everything that you've gone through uh, since Taylor had passed. Yeah, and just kind of how you have coped with everything and, and gotten through it. And okay, all of that. sounds good. Because I know that your experience is very different from your sister's, so... Yes, we probably had... It's almost like we had completely different childhoods. (laughs) Um, And I I don't know why that is, because we both grew up in the same house. But I guess it was underlying personalities, because, you know, she went one way for coping. Like, we all have have to come up with coping mechanisms for just life in general. Um, And hers took sort of a turn of a more chemical variety. 
and mine was much more anxiety mm-hmm. and and those kinds of things that <clears throat> that sort of manifested themselves in childhood and the, the, so those are the kind of things that I've had to cope with wow. stuff so okay. very nice. different experiences yeah oh absolutely okay to start off I really want to thank you for joining me um like I just said I'm really excited to talk to you about your journey and your kind of healing perspective because you have a very different perspective on mental health and that whole battle um as you know I spoke to your sister last week and I know that you've experienced trauma and healing very differently so Thank you for coming on and being open to sharing your story. You're welcome. And thank you for having me. This is kind of kind of exciting. Yeah, I'm ex- Have you ever been on the other side of a podcast? Uh, I have, but not we always talk about murder, right? right. So, uh, it's a little bit different to talk about the mental health side of it. So, that's mm-hmm. and that's kind of exciting to me because of course, mental health is a big um well, mental health, substance abuse and a lot of those things all kind of feed into um, violent crime. Mm-hmm. And because of course it's a, it's kind of a recurring theme sometimes that comes up both in the victims and in the, the perpetrators. So I think it's an important topic to talk about and to talk about very openly. Yeah. Oh, I absolutely yeah. agree. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So to give everyone listening a little bit of background, I guess if they didn't hear last week's episode, um, your niece, Taylor Toller was murdered a little over three years ago. Yeah, July of 2018. Yeah, by um, her boyfriend while he was in a drug-induced psychosis. So I guess, can you touch on kind of the days and months that followed that for you? Like, how did you react to that? Or how did you even find out that it had happened in the first place? Well, my my mom had phoned me a couple of days before they found Taylor and asked if I had seen or heard from her because she sometimes would go, I don't, I don't want to say missing because she wasn't always a missing person, but she just sometimes wasn't in touch with the family um, for sometimes months at a time when she was with Dustin because we did not approve of that relationship and we're really trying to get her to to maybe rethink her life choices in that regard so she had phoned me and said you know have I seen or heard from her and I said no and and she told me a little bit about how they had come back from Regina and Dustin had said that he had been diagnosed with schizophrenia and she just said she was worried. And I said, well, you, you've been watching too much TV because like, you know, I'm, I'm sure everything's fine. She's just with Dustin. She just doesn't want you to know about it. And then I think it was two days after that, she phoned me again to say that she'd put in a missing persons report on her because she was really quite worried. And I, to tell you the truth, I kind of thought that she was being a bit ridiculous and um, I didn't think the police were going to take it seriously and I yeah. I don't whether they did or not I don't they went and knocked on her door I don't know if that's taking it seriously or not uh, and then it was the next day around four o'clock in the afternoon she my mom she texted me and said that they had found Taylor and that she was deceased and so of course I phoned her back and I, I, I 
I don't think I was really comprehending what I was reading. Yeah. Like, I think it was just kind of like, oh, they found Taylor. She's deceased. I don't even know what that means. So I found her and she said, well, they, they, they found her and they have Dustin in custody. And I just thought, well, like, what, what would Dustin have to do with a 24 year old being, being dead? And, and then it just kind of slowly dawned on me that, that he killed her. And I mean, as much true crime and stuff that I have listened to and watched over the years, I just, you just never think that that's going to happen. And I, I think it was probably two days of just in a mode of, okay, what, what's next? What do we have to do next? We have to, you know, I had to phone my dad. He gets on the next plane. You just kind of go into that mode of like, I don't know, you're just kind of putting one foot in front of the other, doing what needs to be done. You're not processing anything. Um, and it really wasn't until, well, Joanne had phoned me to, to say that she found a bag of Taylor's clothes and they were going to put her in a, a, an old pair of her like, pajama bottoms and a, and a hoodie and of course that makes me picture Taylor how she was just you know how a 24 year old around the house yeah. her hair in a big bun on top of her head and these big hoodie and jammy bottoms and I just like that was I don't know I guess it just kind of made it real like we're we're putting these clothes on her body and she's like not with us anymore and then it was only a few minutes later that I turned on the news and they had, um, they were releasing her name. And I think when, when that happens, when you hear it from someone else, that it's not, it's not a mistake. It's not, you know, someone, I don't know, it just made it just really real. So for me, it was probably about two days before I even really, I don't know, comprehended or just started the grieving process at that time because I just was in, I guess, in denial that it couldn't possibly be, she couldn't possibly be gone. Wow. Yeah. So did it take you a long time to process that after? No, I think the funeral makes it very final. Like when there's a funeral and other people are in attendance, you know that, okay, this isn't a dream. I didn't yeah. just make this up. This is actually happening. So um, I think I, I realized and accepted it quite early. I actually put myself into therapy, not because of the trauma or even the grief, because I feel, I feel fairly equipped in life to deal with grief and even trauma mm -hmm. because I've, I've had years of therapy for anxiety and for some other issues and I'm a fairly logical person and I've always been quite fascinated by the death process and and how one person can be there one minute and then they're not so it's it's something that I've just I kind of have dealt with in the past but what was difficult for me and why I needed therapy is because I was so obsessed with not knowing the details like I needed oh, to know yeah. well what was she eating before she died what did she eat what did she say what did she what was she wearing what was she like and, and of course the police and the investigators they can't tell you any of those things yeah. and even if they could they're not going to tell you those minute little details but for some reason they were so important to me and then I became very concerned that was I 
was my love of the true crime part of it. Was that why I needed to know those things? Mm-hmm. Or was it really part of the grieving process? And by wanting to know all that, was I honoring Taylor? Or was I being just kind of a gawker and a looky-loo about the whole thing? And so going through therapy, I learned that, yes, that there is the morbid curiosity and those details are... Um, fascinating from an entertainment perspective but they're also important part of the grieving process because you have to kind of know what happened what the timeline was and that in the end it's okay mm-hmm. like Taylor would be okay with it it's it's okay it doesn't make me a bad person um, that I'm that I was interested in those tiny little details mm-hmm. because and that was really the biggest the biggest hurdle for me was getting through that and of course, once I got completely through that process, then I was able to start the podcast and, and learn that I can honor her by talking about other people's cases and that it's, like I said, like that it's okay. Yeah. Yeah. Are you a, a details person like in other aspects of your life or was it? Well, just I'm just... an accountant. Ah. <laughs> so yes, detail is in, important to me and I think I do that too when I watch movies. When the movie's yeah. over, I always want to know, well, what did that person do the next day? And what did, you know, like I just, yeah, I'm interested in weird, strange details about other people's lives and oh, especially when they die because it's so fascinating to me that you can be there one day as a human being with thoughts and feelings and all that mm-hmm. and the next day, it's like you don't exist anymore. Yeah. I, I just, it's such a strange, I don't, I don't even know how to explain it, but, mm-hmm. and it's always been a fascination for me, which probably doesn't help my anxiety. <laughs> oh, that's so interesting to me. Wow. Uh, so what yeah. have you used kind of to get through those hard days and, and the coping mechanisms that have helped you um, kind of grieve? Well, Taylor would want, I think about what would Taylor, if she did, if she is still thinking and feeling things, wherever she is, what would she be thinking and feeling and wanting? And Taylor was the type of person, she was really remarkable in this regard. If you were sad, she was sad. Like she would cry with you. And if she was happy, if you were happy, she was happy. Like there was no jealousy with her whatsoever. Like if you won the lottery, she would just genuinely be happy for you. She wouldn't be thinking about what was in it for her. She was that kind of person. So would she want all of us to just be constantly grieving and reliving her last moments and, and thinking like, Oh, it's so sad that she's not here anymore and feeling guilty. If you find yourself laughing or at the end of the day, you think, well, I didn't think about her today. And she wouldn't want you to feel guilty about that. She would want you to say, no, that's, that's good. I'm glad that you're there. So I, keeping who Taylor was in my mind has really helped that process because I know for myself, like if I were gone, I wouldn't, yeah, I want people to be sad. You don't want people to be like, yay, she's dead. But you, you just wouldn't want that for someone. You wouldn't, you know, and, and anyone that we love and care about wouldn't want it for us. So we have to just kind of, yes, we miss that person. 
um, it's sad, it's tragic. I, I wish, I wish, I wish, you know, all those things that you, you wish you knew, but it's, it isn't the reality. And I think that just comes back to me being extremely logical and realistic person yes. in all the other parts of my life that it is, it is what it is. So just, you just got to carry on and, mm-hmm. and remember the good times. Have your coping mechanisms changed over time as you have healed a little bit more? Well, fortunately for me, because I, most of my issue from the time I was about 12 has been anxiety. I've had generalized anxiety to the point where I've had a lot of stomach aches and um, my hair fell out a couple of times. I've had big pockets of hair fall out because of just feeling constant anxiety about little stupid things like what if my alarm clock doesn't go off tomorrow morning you know like really really small things and so I've had some therapy for that and I've had all those coping you know the the coping skills of the breathing through all that stuff for years and years and fortunately probably about three or four months before Taylor passed away I finally spoke to my family doctor and I said look I am using my coping skills but I am using them to the point where I'm exhausted. Like every day is exhausting, just coping through this stupid anxiety. And she gave me a prescription for Esseltalopram, just a nice little low dose, start around that. And it just took the edge off. So by the time Taylor passed away, I think I was slightly closer to normal. <laughs> like I'm normal on a scale. So I think that helped. I think if I hadn't had that, I, I would have been a nightmare. But one of the things I have noticed since Taylor passed that seems to be lingering is that fear that my kids are, they're 24 and 21. So they're adults now. But if I don't hear from them for a certain amount of time or I send a text and they don't text back right away, instead of thinking like, oh, they're busy or, oh, they're ignoring me, mm-hmm. I automatically think that they've been murdered and they're laying dead in a ditch somewhere. Like I, my brain just automatically goes there mm-hmm. and it takes a little bit of like, okay, yes, we know that that can happen. It probably hasn't happened here. But then I go into all the things that could happen, right? It's probably more likely a car accident or, you know, something like that. So I still have, I, I'm um, projecting a lot of that anxiety onto the people around me because the the loss is difficult and to, and to have to go through it again. I just don't think that I could do it. Oh, so your anxiety has kind of been heightened since then yeah it's it's changed yeah like before I worried about every little tiny little stupid thing whether there was going to be a parking spot when I needed to be so or whatever running late little teeny tiny things now my anxiety is more like murder hurricanes natural you know like big like the really big things that can can knock you out it's not it hasn't overtaken my life and I'm, I'm functioning at a pretty good level, but yeah, it has changed my anxiety a little bit. Like I think oh, I'm always going to be an anxious person and yeah. I, I have just learned that I'm going to live with that. That is my little friend. <laughs> and he just sits there on my shoulder and talks to me sometimes. And I just sometimes have to tell him to just, okay, <laughs> I get it. Stop talking. Oh yeah. I get that too. <laughs> 
Yeah. So has your anxiety over the little things kind of disappeared? Or um, gotten? Uh, I would say it's definitely, I don't know about disappeared. Now it's a fleeting thought. Instead of intrusive thoughts, they're fleeting thoughts, right? Like, oh, I hope there's good parking. And then that's it. I don't need to think about like, what route am I going to take? What am I going to do if there's not a parking? You know, I don't have to go through the whole what if scenarios. Like I used to say I was like a, I was like a boy scout who was prepared for everything. Like I could be prepared down to the tiniest little what if thing. And now I don't, I don't do that. And I find myself like, "Eh, it'll be okay. Like, you know, a little bit more. So yeah, it's definitely become more fleeting and I I don't know if that's just a result of years of coping Mm -hmm. years of therapy or if it's the medication but all I know is thank god because (laughs) there's only so much so much what if in my life I can possibly do yeah oh that's so interesting so do you find it easier to live like your everyday life um, not having to deal with those little anxiety issues and just, oh, just yes. having these bigger it's, problems. It's so much less exhausting. Yeah. I sleep better at night. It's just, it's just really incredible. And I'm not like the therapy was great. And like I said, it gave me those coping skills, but there are times I think in your life, whatever's going on where it's, it's exhausting. It's too much. If you, I think if you find yourself using your coping skills all the time, it's time to go to the next step and just talk to your family doctor. It doesn't necessarily mean you have to take anything, especially if you've had an issue before in the past with, with medications. And I definitely don't think medication is your first stop. I think the, the therapy is the much better route, but mm-hmm. I'm, I'm glad I went there. Oh my gosh. So when you... You said you got, you know, you went to therapy pretty quickly afterwards, um, but more for your anxiety. Did you kind of face the trauma of losing Taylor right away as well? Or did it take you a while t- for the therapy to kind of address those issues? You know, to tell you the truth, I, I don't know if I ever, if I ever have addressed it. Because it's funny when people people say like you know people will always say it doesn't matter how you lose them you could lose your 100 year old grandmother and people will say I'm sorry for your loss yeah how terrible for you and when people know they say oh my god that's awful or they don't know what to say or those kinds of things and I and I don't I don't know I just think like am I supposed to be feeling more traumatized than I am I I, mm-hmm. I don't I don't know. And I don't know if it's because I, I feel like I've coped with it well and I've put it into a perspective or if I'm just, if I maybe just avoided it because I don't feel any more horrible. Like I had a girlfriend who passed away just before her 50th birthday. She had an epileptic seizure um, and she choked and that's how she died. Extremely tragic. And she left behind a son and like, it was, that was, like, I don't feel like, like losing her was very, very difficult. And so was this, mm-hmm. but I almost see hers as more traumatic to me. And I don't know if it's because I saw myself as her and saw my own mortality in her. Whereas Taylor was, I don't I don't know I honestly don't know yeah. they, 
like I said, I, I, I fear sometimes that I come across like I, like I'm heartless about it. And I'm like, but I'm not, I'm just extremely logical. There is nothing we can do about the loss of Taylor and thinking about it and feeling traumatized by it, about how she died doesn't help the situation. So what can we do to help the situation? And what Joanne has done with the um, Memorial Fund and helping other victims and try to get through to some people, both men and women, that look for those warning signs and get out. I think that's all we can do. So I always find it interesting when people talk so much about trauma. Mm-hmm. I don't, maybe I'm just, maybe there's, maybe there's something wrong with me. <laughs> don't know. I'm really curious about that. Um, Because I experience kind of almost a lack of emotions towards other people or or situations or anything like that. And I don't know if that's from my mental health issues, like the anxiety or the depression or something else. Um, Do you experience that in other aspects of your life as well? Maybe. Like, maybe I feel more for other people. I... Then I do, because I do, I feel terrible. Like when I hear about people who have lost family members, um, especially through homicide, I feel, oh, that's terrible. Like I, I almost feel like I, I'm, I've never heard. And it, sometimes they almost have to remind me that, well, you've, you've lost someone too. And I'm like, mm-hmm. oh yeah, yeah, I guess I have. Mm-hmm. And, and I guess it's because my brain just can't, it just doesn't want to go that deep into, into trauma. I think that mm-hmm. I, I just don't want to see it maybe for what it really is. The, the reason why I became so fascinated with death was, and that, well, actually it's not the reason, it's just the, the event was my, when I was five, my Annie Marg passed away in a car accident. She was like favorite aunt kind of thing. She wasn't an aunt aunt, but you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. family friend aunt. Yeah. And my mom was one of these people that was always quite honest about things. She just spoke about things. So she said, well, she's, she passed away. Well, well, how did she pass away? Well, there was a car accident. Well, what is a car? Like, how how does that? Because again, I'm five, right? Really, don't know anything. And she said, "Oh, it, it snapped her neck." Oh, snapped her. Neck. And you know, and I'm just so fascinated that I'm like, you can snap your neck and it can kill you. Like, and so then they had an open casket casket funeral, and I wasn't allowed to go in because my mom said, "No, no, too too traumatic or whatever." Mm-hmm. And I remember every detail of that door on the church that was closed that I couldn't go through and I remember thinking like what does she look like what is what does death look like like and and what does gone mean and all that and just the whole and it just became a thing (laughs) so actually when I was in high school thinking about what I wanted to do with my life I really wanted to go through to become a forensic pathologist um, to actually do autopsies and stuff like that. But it was, I mean, it's a million years of school and I was lazy back then. So I said, well, no, I, I think I'll do something else. But I've, I've always had that fascination with mm-hmm. death. And I think that um, then when I learned that crime and homicide was a thing, well, then that became even more of a fascination. So I guess when Taylor died, and I think that that's part of the reason why I needed to go to the therapy was because I was like, Emma, is there too much fascination here and not enough grieving? 
And how do I combine the two of them? And then that was what really where my therapist helped me say that you can combine the two. And it's, it's okay that you have this fascination as long as you address that you actually lost somebody here and that you need to grieve as well. And I've reconciled in my brain that Taylor would be okay with me being fascinated by her autopsy photos. She would be okay with that. That helps. But it's interesting when you bring up trauma that I just, I guess I just don't see it any more traumatizing than losing anybody for mm-hmm. any reason. When yeah. Death is traumatizing. When you lose somebody, especially someone under the age of 80, it's difficult mm-hmm. and it's traumatizing. And, you know, when you watch those shows like Hoarders and that, everything's always going along fine. And then somebody in the family has died and they've suffered a loss. And then all of a sudden they become hoarders or whatever. Like it, obviously death is traumatizing to yeah. people yeah. and it can trigger all kinds of mental health issues. Mm-hmm. So maybe I just tend to keep myself too much on the surface of it and just say, I just don't want to, I don't know if I want to dig all deep about how it really makes me feel. And, and, and that's that. okay. That's, that's your way of, of coping with it, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, I guess so. That's crazy that you bring up um I I actually wanted to be a coroner when I was younger too. Yeah. And I yeah, I wanted to go to school forensic science um to do autopsies. That that was always so interesting to me and intriguing. But yeah. I never ended up doing it. But yeah, I yeah, think it be. is a lot. A lot of years of school. My daughter is now in the beginning process she's done five years of school I think she's got 12 more to go she says she's going to do it and she's certainly smart enough to do it um so we'll see where she if she actually goes all the way through it's a tough one because there's only I think about 12 of them in Canada wow so it's not it's not like there's a you can't just go on indeed and and get a job (laughs) as a forensic pathologist so but we'll see We'll see what she does. But yeah, she she's also fascinated in it as well. And she's very similar to me, the same way, just quite quite logical about it. Mm-hmm. So I guess yeah. has your logic kind of helped you in your podcast when you're talking to all of these people about murder and and death of, of like their own family members and stuff like that? Has that helped you kind of separate yourself from the emotional side of it? I think so. I, I definitely feel a huge amount of com- compassion for yeah. every, both the victim themselves and for the families that are left behind, because I know that, I, I mean, I see it in other family members that are still really trying to process it and that it's difficult and the trial process and how long that is for some families and how it doesn't turn out the way you want it for a number of families and there's anger and all that. So I have huge compassion, but you're right. And the logic is just kind of like, okay, well, like I recently did a story where I actually spoke to the family members and that was much more difficult for me than the ones where I have to just research. Mm-hmm. It's, it's almost like research on paper or you just hear audio or whatever. Um, to actually speak to people is is a little bit yeah. more difficult. Like I felt like I got to know their son who was the victim and felt like just, it's just upsetting and it's just sad when 
these things happen because it doesn't have to be like this. Like there are mm-hmm. so many other choices that a person could make other than, and I think that that was probably my biggest struggle with the whole process. It's like, what, why? I just don't get why somebody would do that to another human being. She had no money. She had, I, what, did, what good did her death do to Dustin? Mm-hmm. It didn't help him. It ruined his life. So why? Like, I, I don't wow. get it. Yeah. Wow. And I don't, I don't think I buy the psychosis part of it. Drugs. Yes. Do I feel like if it hadn't have been for, like, if he hadn't had addiction issues, this probably wouldn't have happened. Mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe not. I think he had a lot of anger in him anyways, but the psychosis part of it is like, but, but, but he took steps to try to cover it up. And when he spoke with the police, he was speaking logically. And uh, so I don't, don't, I'm not saying he's not prone to drug-induced psychosis. And I've actually seen psychosis in action. So I know what it looks like. Uh, It it is frightening. But they, they don't talk in a way that's rational. Like it's, it's. It's just easier to see. Like I look at that case, the, the Brentwood five, and I feel like um, Matthew DeGrude was very ill and he definitely at the moment didn't know what he was doing. Mm -hmm. I think Dustin knew what he was doing. And I don't, again, I don't know why. Yeah. So you've never experienced addiction issues yourself. Have you? Not myself. No. But no. you've seen um, kind of your sister's struggles? Yeah, well? so she started, I don't know, she just kind of went a little bit more. She had a different group of friends. But they've been about 14 or 15 her age. So I would have been, I think I was around 13 or 14 when I started to notice with her. that she was just more rebellious, right? School wasn't a big concern. Um, she was out with her friends a lot the addiction part of it I didn't really realize until I think she was a bit older that she had addiction issues because I I remember one time she was she had a friend over and they were drinking paralyzers or something and the the glass was like gross with like looked like sour milk around the, the sides and they're just drinking this and I just thought that's a sickness like, can she not see what she's doing? Like, and that, I guess that's when I kind of realized, well, I think she has a bit of a problem. Um, but she, then she moved, she was kind of in and out of the house a lot. And I think I just saw, here's the thing I notice a lot about people that have addiction issues. And I, I don't really know how this will come across, but it seems very self-absorbed. Like the feeling is like, it's, but what about me, right? Mm-hmm. Or it's not my fault, or if it's it's because of this. And that, I noticed that about my sister when we were growing up, right? Like if <clears throat> she got a bad grade in school, it wasn't her fault. It was because the teacher didn't like her, or if this happened or that happened or whatever. And so I just noticed that. And I've noticed it in a number of people that I've met that have addiction issues I'm like yeah they seem very like it's like and I don't know if that comes from 
being in that that state or if it's a personality type that then leads someone because you know like, like being self-absorbed in itself isn't such a terrible thing because there's there are some people that are just more like that and then there's other people that are more nurturing and caring about others so but I just I I have noticed that and I again I it's one of those things I've noticed don't say it out loud very often because I know how it comes across but I think it's it's true especially when people are in their addiction they are very self-absorbed yeah and I think part of treating the addiction is getting to that that piece of like there has to be a way for that person to be able to see what they're doing and how it's affecting the people around them. Because some, because I've heard so many people say like, oh, it's not like, so what if I want to party? Who does it hurt if I'm partying or whatever? But, you know, they're not able to see that like, well, it has these ripple effects to the people around them. I don't know. Does that make any sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So has your view on drugs and addiction changed at all since Taylor's death? Not since Taylor's death. I, um, well, maybe it has a little bit. To tell you the truth, I'm maybe a little bit more, more compassionate about it as, yeah. as an illness because I, I see so many cases where addiction is, is an issue, whether, again, whether it's a victim or it's the perpetrator. In a lot of cases, it is the victim and how hard it is to quit. And then I think back, like, I used to be a smoker, a heavy smoker, and I remember how hard it is to quit and the excuses and the, it's, well, tomorrow, I'm going to start tomorrow. I'm going to, you know, all those things in that. So I understand that for a lot of people who have addiction issues, there is that desire to quit and to, to want to, to fix their lives and do better. And, and tomorrow's, tomorrow, I'm going to do it tomorrow. And I, I, I think I have a little bit more compassion in some regard, but then on the other hand, these, the people that commit violent crimes while under the influence, those ones, I think I'm even more angry at than I was before, because I just think it's just so unnecessary. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I talked to, or I got to hear from Joanne about because of her addiction struggles in the past, she kind of understood how Dustin could have done what he did and how she's kind of forgiven him for it. Mm-hmm. But where are you at with that? Like, how do you feel towards him? Well, I was definitely, before I did the podcast on Taylor, I was not there. I was just mad. Just yeah. like, yeah. what an idiot. I hate this guy. He's ruined my whole family. And how could he do this? And then listening to, so I'm glad that I I did the podcast because, I mean, our family, we definitely talk about Taylor and we even talk about the events leading up to it and all that stuff. But Mm -hmm. um, I don't think we've really had a deep discussion about how do you feel? So to ask those questions and get the answers, because both my mom and my sister are there in a place of just forgiveness and, and that, that hearing Joanne say that she was there and I'm like, this is her child, right? Like if anybody has the right to be mad for the rest of her life and to, to never forgive, it would be her. 
And if she's forgiving of my mom, I'm not actually not surprised by my mom. She's um, fairly religious and that. So I think that for her, she's like, you know, we're all human beings and we need to have that a spirit of forgiveness. So I think that it's helped me. So there's moments where I'm like, okay, I get it. You know, he's a human being. He didn't, you know, but I think I'm just disappointed. Yeah. Just disappointed in how he behaved, how it turned out. It's just not what I pictured for for Taylor or for our family. Mm -hmm. So it's disappointing. But I know that I'll... I'm going to get there. I maybe not to the point where I'm willing to help him and, and feeling like I want to reach out to him. Yeah. I might never get there. Yeah. Although there's a piece of me that would like to sit down to him with him and just say, like, explain to me why I want to know what was going through your head at that moment and find out the details from him. Mm-hmm. But I think I'd just be disappointed. So yeah, I'm not there and I'm not going to do that. Yeah, that's fair. I know that everyone's um, healing journey and and recovery journey is is different, but do you have kind of any advice for people who have suffered a loss and and maybe don't really know where to start? I think there are. I mean, there's some great grief services out there, but the number one thing I think to help anybody is to think about that person when they were still here like, and, and think about if you had the opportunity to sit down with that person and say, okay, you're gone. What am I supposed to do now? Mm-hmm. And almost like have that conversation in your head with that person. I think nine times out of 10, the per, if you imagine that person who they were, they're going to say, I want you to move forward. I want you to continue writing that book you were going to write, or I want you to to take that vacation and I want you to have fun and enjoy the memories of me and not be thinking that. So I, to me, I think that was the number one thing that helped me right from the beginning to be able to say, you know, even just shortly after she passed away to have that conversation with, with mm-hmm. her in my mind, Taylor, what do you want here? Like, what, what am I supposed to do here? Mm-hmm. And to know that she would be like, Oh, you know, Auntie Kim, like just, you know, keep going. And, and like, no, forget about me. nobody ever is ever going to say, Oh, just forget about me. <laughs> Pretend I never existed, but just, yeah, just keep going and just keep putting that foot in front of the other and, and that. And maybe it's a little easier said than done for me because Taylor wasn't an everyday part of my life. She was certainly part of my family and someone that I loved and I cared for. And I babysat for her when she was little and all those things. But she wasn't my child. Mm-hmm. She wasn't because I I think sometimes like what if it were one of my kids and that would be a lot tougher yeah. to, to have that conversation with, with one of my kids in my head because I would just not want to, I just wouldn't want to move forward. But yeah. that one's really tough. That one's really tough. Wow. I, when it's your own child, I, that's a pain that I just don't even want to, I don't, I don't want to go there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Okay. I do want to touch on your own podcast as well. Um, it's called A Million Other Choices. 
And so for everyone out there that has never heard of it, um, what is it all about? Well, it is a, it is true crime podcast. So we, I will talk about cases that a lot of them are local and maybe ones that people haven't heard too much about. Um, a lot of them are definitely Canadian. I do occasionally do some from other places. They have to have something that really resonates with me. And then I want to mm-hmm. talk about, um, well, I, I definitely like to talk about the victim and who that person was and try to make them um, come alive a little bit to the, for the listener. But I want to talk about how it's affected the family since, whether that person is a marginalized person even somebody that home was homeless they matter to somebody so I want to make that the important part is of who who the person was and and then we will often talk about some of the motives like if there's um, a social issue with violence in schools then I will try to research that and talk about how that how we can maybe do better there and and that we just we just talk about murder and what we can do about it. And I, and I really try to look at it from a victim, the victim's perspective. Um, there's no banter. I don't have um, someone on that. We make jokes about anything. It is just, uh, and I try to just get to the facts. I don't really talk about my own life going on. I just say, here's the story and then just kind of get into it. And so far people seem to appreciate that. So, mm-hmm. so you started this, after Taylor passed, right? Yes. So I had been kicking around the idea of a podcast, like a podcast podcast. I didn't even think of a topic yet for probably about a year, like after Taylor passed away, but for about a year, just, I don't know. I just like the idea of podcasting. I think it's kind of fun. And of course I instinctively knew, oh, true crime would probably be where I would go with it because um, it's a topic I know a lot about, but there's so many of them out there. Everybody's done it. It's like, there's a million true crime podcasts out there. And for some reason it was just around the anniversary of her passing this past August. I just kind of woke up this one morning and said, well, so what if there's a million of It's not like I'm looking to get rich from it. I just really want to try it and I want to do it. I like the editing part of it. And so I'm just going to try it. And so I, I remembered um, the story of Kimmy Thompson who passed away in 1980. It was, I remember it from when I was a kid here in Calgary. And I thought, that's I'm going to start with that story. So I, I wrote it, researched it, did it, threw it up there thinking, yeah, maybe a couple of friends of mine or something might listen to it. And it turns out there's people that it doesn't matter how many true crime podcasts there are out there. There's people listening to it and it's kind of grown from there. And I'm really glad that I did it. And so once I got about like six or seven episodes in there, I thought people are going to start asking me to do Taylor's story oh, because yeah. I've said like, well, like I kind of know what it's like to be um, a family member and, that was actually stressful because I felt a lot of pressure to not just do it, but do it right. Right. Like to, yeah. don't leave anything out, do it in a way that really honors Taylor, doesn't upset any family members, you know? Yeah. So it was, it was tough. And so I, I sort of drug my feet for a little while picking a date and thinking, oh, I don't know if I want to do it. And finally I just said, you know what, 
you're never going to do it if you don't just pick a date. So I just picked a date, picked Halloween because uh, Taylor liked Halloween just the same as I do. So I'm like, yeah, just pick Halloween and uh, put it out there. And it, it has really, it was healing to do it. It really helped me to just kind of get it all out of my system, right? Even the morbid curiosity stuff, get that out of my, you know, just say, here's the whole story, everything that happened. Here's how everybody feels about it now. And yeah, it was good. It was a good experience. And I'm glad that I did it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Okay. But doing it was really good because it also managed to get me very briefly onto the new and notable just for oh, yeah. a couple of weeks. Like it actually put me out there. So that's helped grow, grow the podcast as well. So nice. do you have any kind of future plans or, or goals for it? Well, I, I kind of already um, met my goals with it. I said I was going to give it a year, and I wanted about 20 fairly loyal listeners, maybe a couple hundred downloads or something like that, and I've, I've kind of blown that one out of the water, which is great. So now, I don't know what I want to do. I just think I'm just going to just keep doing it and, and see where it goes. I Like I said, I'm not looking to make money from it, so I'm not... Yeah. Um, looking to, there's no point in monetizing it until it uh, gets to a point where you could actually make a living from it, and that's that's a long time away. So I just figure, in the meantime, I'm just going to tell the stories, and and people seem to be enjoying it, and I I want to have other people on. Like I, I do enjoy talking to people mm-hmm. that want to tell their stories, and that just like you like talking to people that you know sharing the yeah. stories. I like that part. So. Um, podcasting has actually been really it's a great way to interact with people that have had similar experiences yeah. and and learn new experiences from people oh that's so awesome it's probably so much fun for you too yeah yeah well you you seem to really enjoy it I've listened to a couple of your episodes and it's it's yeah. it's interesting to hear someone else's story especially with that with that honesty of just like yeah here's where it is whether you like it or not I'm just gonna say it yeah I I love it I love just connecting with people and hearing their stories and being able to relate to people at the same time um, yeah with what I've been through too it's that's been so much fun yeah yeah I like I do like people who are really honest I remember when I was my kids were really really tiny and I went to this like a play group kind of thing. It was like sort of a, it was almost like group therapy for her parents at that mm-hmm. time because you had the parent group and then the kids would play. Yeah. You know what I mean? And and this parent group, of course, we sat around and we talked about different parenting issues. And there was the parents that talk about the ear infection or whatever. And but I wanted the people that I connected with were the ones that would say, There are days when I just hate my child (laughs) those ones that were just totally raw honest and I thought these are my people like that because I I like that I like people that just say this is just the one this is just what I'm feeling and I I'm sorry that I'm feeling it and if it upsets you that I feel it but I feel it Mm -hmm. because I think it's difficult we spend so much time in society just trying not to upset people that sometimes you just want to you know, say the real, what you're really thinking, yeah, <laughs> what you're I really agree. feeling. Oh, I completely agree. Yeah. So, so this is a nice place to be able to do that, to say, yeah. you know. Oh, good. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. 
Okay, I have two questions for you that I ask um, most people that come on the podcast. Um, just to finish off, um, so the first one is looking back over your journey. Is there any advice that you would give your younger self or any advice that you wish you would have received when you were younger? That is a loaded question. <laughs> uh, I wish I'd have learned the value of exercise and a good diet back when I was really young. That's definitely one thing that I've I've learned is eat your vegetables, <laughs> like, you know, looking back and, and move your body. And I guess the reason why I say that is because I... I see my mom now. My mom did. She's done yoga and she walks and she's 80 years old, still doing her yoga. She does it sitting down now, but she's still doing it. And I think she does that because she always did. And so it scares me now to think at 50 in 30 years, what is 50 years of not doing all that stuff going to <laughs> going to do I don't want to be one of those little old ladies that stooped over walking across the street really slowly so I'm starting to learn that geez if I'd have just incorporated yoga so there that's my lesson do yoga start young do yoga I like it I like it (laughs) okay my last question for you is is there a stigma or a misconception surrounding mental health that bothers you the most or that you hear most often but isn't true? Yeah, I think that, well, there's a, there's a lot of it that bugs me. The, the schizophrenia one bothers me that people with schizophrenia are dangerous and violent. Mm-hmm. I do not believe that they are. I think that they can be if they mix either it being unaddressed or they mix substance abuse with it, which is unfortunately, I think it's tempting for people that are going through that when the side effects from the medications have all these terrible after effects where, hey, if I just, you know, do a little coke, it's not so bad. So I get that. I see that it's very tempting. But but to just class people, oh, schizophrenia, that just automatically means you're you're a violent criminal and that you need to be avoided that that one bothers me and there's just a lot I have a lot of problems with the whole mental health system here in Alberta Mm -hmm. they just it is just uh only deal with things when it's an absolute crisis and then spit them back out as soon as it's not a crisis anymore with give them a few pamphlets and send them on their way that doesn't help anybody and everything always comes back to money that it's just it's too expensive to do that or we don't have the funding in that and what is it the the statistic is one in five one in five children or something needs mental health services and only one in probably a hundred gets it it's ridiculous Mm -hmm. it needs to be taught in schools or something that to look for the signs or um addressed it it is such a preventative measure if you could just address mental health right from a very very early age and do it properly not just like well we can give you this program for um a few months or just for kindergarten and then that funding drops off and now you have to go into this it is and they make it so difficult to navigate for for parents and for adults and then of course that that cusp period between teenagers that become adults that's awful in there too like it's 
don't get me started on the mental health system here in Alberta. It's been very, oh, very, very, very challenging for me. I completely yeah. agree. It's so difficult. Okay. Well, that is all the questions that I had for you. Was there anything else that you wanted to bring up that we didn't touch on? I know. I don't think so. Uh, it's funny. I, I had <clears throat> sort of had in my mind of how the conversation would go. And then now I feel different about it. Like, I feel like, I guess I'm having anxiety because I'm thinking like, are people going to think I'm a terrible person because I'm not traumatized or not, I haven't been able to articulate being traumatized enough. Do you know what I mean? Yes, I totally understand what you're saying. But at the same time, everyone experiences it differently and everyone goes through that grieving process or the coping process differently. And this is just your way of handling it and your way of dealing with it. And if that's different than somebody else, then that's okay. Yeah. I mean, I guess I just worry because I put myself out there now, right? Yes. As a person who's um, had a family member be a victim of a homicide. And then you do a whole podcast that's basically hinged on that, that this is my different perspective because, you know, uh, most podcasters haven't been there. I've been there. I, I understand how you feel, but then to talk to you and then say, well, I actually, I feel okay. <laughs> and so, I don't know. To me, that sounds strange. That how could I be? How can I be okay? Like I feel almost like, yeah. am I not supposed to be okay? But you weren't. Is it okay that I'm okay? You weren't always okay. No, no, that's true. So it wasn't always. And I definitely had my moments, and I still do. I still occasionally have those very private moments where you get a little choked up, right? Mm-hmm. You see something that like reminds you of, of Taylor and then it brings it all back. And those, you know, you get a little teary about it. Um, I don't go back to the like worst day of my life kind of part of it, but I still, I still have those moments. So, okay. I feel better now. I feel <laughs> like it's okay. <laughs> it's okay to be okay. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So if people have more questions for you or want to reach out to you, are you open to that? Yes, absolutely. They can email me at a million other choices at outlook.com. Okay. And I'm also on Instagram and Facebook as well. Thank you so much for tuning in today. Feel free to reach out at any time. You can contact me on Instagram and Facebook at StompTheStigmaYYC, and you can email me at StompTheStigmaYYC at gmail.com. If you like the podcast, please like and subscribe on YouTube, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or Apple Podcasts. And if you or someone you know would like to come on, I would love to have you share your story, speak your truth, and together we can stomp the stigma.